Father, we thank you that your word is truth. In a world of falsehood and lies, we turn to your word and we find absolute truth. Something we can trust completely. And Father, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. For me as I speak, for all of us as we listen and respond, we want to hear the words that you know we individually need to hear this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. We're going to look this morning at Second Corinthians chapter 5, the opening verses. In various places in the New Testament, we find Paul saying, I don't want you to be ignorant. And we also find him putting it another way and saying, we know. We say there are certain things that are extra important for the Christian believer to know. There are very many, perhaps not too many, genuine Christians who struggle with doubts. They wonder if really the Bible is 100% true. Some of the promises seem too good to be true. And some Christians have genuine struggles with doubts, but God doesn't want us to have doubts. He wants us to be strong in faith and to be absolutely sure that what he has promised, he will deliver. So let's turn to 2 Corinthians 5 and read from the beginning. Now says Paul, we know, and of course he's writing as a Christian to Christians, we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed... We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent we groan and are burdened. Because we do not wish to be unclothed but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we're always confident and know that as long as we're at home in the body we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Perhaps without a question, the best known words in the Old Testament would be the 23rd Psalm, The Lord is my shepherd. But equally, the best known words in the New Testament would be the words we find in John chapter 14, where Jesus, our Lord, is preparing his disciples for his going away from them. And he says these words which are spoken so often, and rightly so, at Christian funeral services. 
Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me, said Jesus. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You would notice that in reading 2 Corinthians 5, we found Paul describing our physical body as a tent, which one day we shall discard. Well, Peter uses the very same language where, when he says that I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. Because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So Peter was writing of his awareness that his physical life was not going to last much longer. And the Apostle Paul, as he wrote to the Philippians, which I think George Mitchell is studying with you on Sunday evenings, said something similar. When he said, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Paul, as he writes these Christians in Corinth, speaks about the experience of groaning. He says, we know that when we discard the tent of our physical body at the end of our physical life on earth, we have an eternal house in heaven. Meanwhile, he says, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. He repeats these words later on. We groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Let's think for a minute or two, first of all, about our groaning. Groaning is part and parcel of life in this world. We're not blissfully happy all the time. We experience times of sorrow, of brokenness, of sense of failure perhaps, and shame, distress for various reasons. And we do a bit of groaning. I know I have done groaning. Well, if we turn, you see, to Romans chapter 8, a very helpful chapter in God's Word. We turn to Romans chapter 8 and we find in verse 23, Paul saying, not only so, but we ourselves, that's we Christians, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. As Christians we, we are and ought to be constantly grateful for the many, many blessings God has given us. But while we are grateful for his blessings, we are aware from our knowledge of Scripture there are better things up front awaiting us. And says Paul, we groan inwardly 
as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, we've already been adopted into the family of God, but the fullness of that experience will not come until resurrection comes and we experience the very redemption, redemption of our bodies. Back in the book of Psalms, way back in King David's time, David speaks about the same experience of groaning. David, as you know, was hunted like an animal by Saul who was jealous of him. And David experienced hardship and suffering and distress. And he says there in Psalm 6, I am worn out with groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. So whether we groan because we have lost a loved one, or whether we groan for some other reason, yes, groaning is part of human experience. But the good thing is, it doesn't go on all the time. Other things continue, but groaning happens from time to time, from one situation to another. Now already in glancing at Romans 8, we have come across this word groaning. But the context there is very interesting. Because if we go back to Romans chapter 8, we discover that we are part of a groaning creation. It's language that some people find a little difficult to really understand. It's a bit foreign to our way of thinking. And here Paul says in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Now he's talking about the creation as an, as an entire entity, the whole of creation, physical creation and all that's part of it. Creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, for the children of God to come into the fullness of their blessing at resurrection time. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be deliberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. The Bible tells us what happened to creation when man sinned in the beginning. The Lord spoke to Adam and he said to Adam, the ground is cursed because of you. He didn't have thorns and thistles before, you're going to have them now. Good things, they had only good things. Everything was perfect before man sinned. But since man sinned, the curse of God in a sense has been in, on his creation. And creation is described here as decaying. Decaying, that's interesting in the light of all teaching on climate change and so on. And creation is described as being subjected to frustration. Now you see, we understand how creation, which is inanimate, not having a mind as we as far as we know, can yet feel things like frustration. Some people find this language easier to relate to than others. Some people hear the sighing of the wind in the branches of the trees, and they feel, hear the water lapping on the shores of our island and so on. And the sense that creation is actually speaking and saying things, it's expressing some of this frustration, just going on doing the same thing year after year after year and decaying along with that. So we're all part of a groaning creation. 
But if we go on, we read more. We find Paul saying, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So the groaning is continuous. An example of creation groaning, or part of creation groaning, that we wouldn't expect to groan, is in the book of Joel, where Joel has described the coming of the locust swarm. Thankfully we don't have these in Scotland. When a locust swarm comes in, it eats up everything in sight that's green. Everything that's edible disappears. The locusts come in their thousands and just remove everything that would be food for animal life. And so we find this strange statement in Joel chapter 1, where Joel is led to write, after the coming of the locust swarm, how the cattle moan or groan, the herds mill about, because they have no pasture, even the flocks of sheep are suffering. Maybe you didn't ever think before of cattle groaning, but Joel says they do. The cattle are behaving in a way that expresses a, a kind of inward groaning because there's no food for them. But of course we go back further still in Scripture in the Old Testament and we go back to Exodus chapter 2 and we find that there there's a groaning that's going on that is a human groaning. We're told that the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. You remember they had become completely downtrodden in Egypt and were being used as cheap slave labor, labor. And God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and so on. So groaning is something that is described in scripture. Maybe, maybe some of us here this morning are doing a bit of groaning. We are part of a groaning creation. But more than that, we are prompted by a groaning creator. If we go back to John 11, we read there of the time when our Lord Jesus came to Bethany, having been informed of the illness of his friend Lazarus. He didn't hurry to go back. Uh, it was a mystery to the disciples why he did not immediately go to Bethany, but he didn't. And he knew himself from God that Lazarus had died physically. Eventually he got back to Bethany and found the two sisters of Lazarus obviously in a state of mourning. And we're told there in John 11 that Mary, though she wasn't the first to go out to speak to Jesus, she came to reach the place where Jesus was and she saw him. She fell at his feet and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw Mary weeping and the Jews had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. Why? Well, this verb, deeply moved in spirit, is a word which combines the meanings of sorrow and anger. Why did our Lord Jesus react in this way when he was brought face to face with another example of death? It was as if a holy anger rose up within him as he realized the consequences of sin in the world because sin it is that produces death. The wages of sin is death. If Adam and Eve had not sinned, they would not have died. 
but they did and here is our Lord Jesus weeping weeping as this passage tells us weeping in sorrow and anger over the effects of sin including the fact of death back again to Romans chapter 8 and having spoken about a groaning creation within which there is a groaning church there is a particular kind of groaning that perhaps Christians do differently from non-Christians but then within each individual groaning Christian there is a groaning Holy Spirit three concentric circles the big circle of groaning creation this middle circle of groaning church and within every Christian believer a groaning Holy Spirit in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness we don't know what we ought to pray but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will Jesus intercedes for us in heaven the Holy Spirit intercedes for us within our own lives yes with groanings which words cannot express and perhaps sometimes when we are deeply upset as we are when we lose loved ones we groan we literally groan because words seem inadequate what can we say and we find ourselves making groaning noises yes I've been there I know what that means our groaning alright we are part of a groaning creation we are prompted by a groaning creator and then Paul goes on to say something very wonderful and very positive because he says this he says it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come ah our groaning seems to be a negative experience one we would rather not have but here is something very positive following that God has given us the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come oh the word deposit it's actually only one word in the Greek there's two words here in this English translation of the NIV the word deposit and then what the deposit does guaranteeing it's actually only one word in Greek it is a word which means a pledge a pledge and here we have a pledge of immortality a pledge of immortality turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and Paul writes to the same people as he wrote the second letter to and he says I declare to you brothers that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable listen I tell you a mystery we will not all sleep but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed 
For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying it is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord. Jesus Christ. This guarantee of which Paul speaks. Is a guarantee of immortality. Deathlessness. Deathlessness. Back in John chapter 5. The Lord Jesus had just been speaking about the spiritual resurrection that takes place when we are saved from our sin, when we come to Jesus, when we're born again. It's a spiritual resurrection that has taken place. He says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, will not be condemned, he's crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come. So it was happening in Jesus' time on planet earth. A time has now come, he says, when the dead, that's the spiritually dead, will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's a spiritual resurrection. That's what happens to us when we're born again. And then Jesus goes on to say, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming in the future when all who are in their graves will hear his voice, the voice of the Son of God, and they will come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. I still remember with a smile the occasion many years ago when I was taking a funeral service. There had been a service in the funeral parlour we were travelling to one of the cemeteries in Glasgow for the burial and I went in a limousine sat beside the driver in the front of the car and as he drove into the cemetery I shocked him I said to him ah, they're kind of quiet, sleepy places these cemeteries <laughs> he says, that's right, they certainly are but I said, you know what there's a day coming when these cemeteries are going to be the busiest, noisiest places in town because Jesus is coming back and the dead are going to be raised he gave me a very strange look he's never had a passenger like me before <laughs> but it's true you see the word cemetery comes from the Greek word meaning a sleeping place and that's why we call them cemeteries because the Bible doesn't use the word death for the Christian it uses the word sleep hmm. Jesus died he died because he experienced the fullness, the awful fullness of death, he was separated, at least for a time, from his father. Cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced the consequence of death, which is separation from God. But we don't experience that. We simply fall asleep, united to the risen Lord Jesus. How good, how wonderful is that? The old couplet said, old soldiers never die, they only fade away. I prefer my version. True Christians never die, they only fall asleep. Ah, ah, yes. Back to John 11 for a minute. John 11, we saw that Mary was the second of the two sisters to come and pour their heart to Jesus. 
But Martha had already got there before Mary, and Martha and Mary just used exactly the same words. Lord, if you had been here, said Martha, my brother wouldn't have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. True Christians never die. Jesus said so. Oh, how wonderful is that? This is one of the areas where the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian is immense. It is enormous. The Bible tells us that the non-Christian is a person who is living with no hope. No hope. None. For the future. But by contrast, the same Bible tells us that Christ in us, in our hearts, in our lives, he's the hope of glory. Yes! He's the hope of glory. And here we're thinking about this guarantee that God has given us in the gift of the Holy Spirit. The guarantee of immortality. Deathlessness. You see, the word that Paul uses here, translated, as I said already, by two words in the English, the deposit guaranteeing something. I mean, today, in the 21st century, you can go out and buy a car. You don't have to pay the whole price. You can put down a deposit and say, I'll pay up the rest later, I guarantee, to pay the balance. And you drive off in the car, it's your car. It's now your car. You haven't paid in full for it, but you've guaranteed that having paid the deposit, you will pay the rest. And Paul is telling us, he's teaching us, that the gift of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives is the guarantee, an absolute cast-iron guarantee but the rest will follow. We've already experienced the new life of the Spirit here and now in this body of flesh. And the guarantee is that what God has told us he's got in store for us is guaranteed. Absolutely. Absolutely guaranteed. Absolute certainty. The guarantee of immortality is also a guarantee of inheritance. We saw Paul saying that in 1 Corinthians 15. Flesh and blood our present life, our present construction, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We've got to be changed in order to inherit the kingdom of God. But once we are changed, yes, we will inherit the future dimension of that kingdom of God. You may remember the Apostle Paul giving his testimony before the Jewish king Agrippa. He's telling Agrippa about his experience of conversion, how the Lord Jesus met him on the Damascus Road. And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Get up, stand on your feet, I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place, literally an inheritance, among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And of course, the Apostle Peter writes about that very thing in his first letter when he says, Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. An inheritance is something that we get when a death has taken place. What the Father has put together, what the Father has saved, when the Father dies, the Son inherits. That's it. The Lord Jesus died, paid in full for our redemption. As Paul writes to the Christians in Ephesus in Turkey, he uses this same word actually that is used here of the deposit. And he says this, He says, you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. The Holy Spirit, again, Paul says the same thing, different letter. He is the deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So the more certain we are that the Holy Spirit is in our lives and the best way to be sure that he's there and hasn't left us is to keep in touch with him. Talk to him every day. Ask for his help every day. And you know that he's not only helping us to live a new life God has given us but he is by his presence in our life the guarantee of the fuller life that awaits us in the future. In the same Second Corinthian letter, earlier in the same letter, Paul has used the same expression. He has said that it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership upon us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Same language. And this, interestingly, this Greek word that's translated deposit is the word for an engagement ring. Ha! An engagement ring. When a girl gets engaged, she keeps kind of lifting her left hand and you know, waving it around a bit and saying, what's going on? She wants the public, she wants as many people as possible to say, look, 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 somebody loves me. I've got an engagement ring. And it's only the deposit is the first installment. The rest's up front. One day we'll be married. That's the word. The deposit. Guaranteeing what's going to happen later on. Ah! Our groaning, our guarantee of immortality, of inheritance. And then Paul speaks of something else. Speaks about our goal. How should we react? To know that we have such blessings. To know the Lord Jesus is preparing for us a wonderful home in heaven. To know the Bible speaks of new heavens and new earth where everything will be absolute perfection. To know that we have this inheritance. We inherit the kingdom of God in its future dimension. Oh, it is so wonderful. Nothing on earth compares with it. So how should we react? How should we live? Well, Paul tells us how we should live. He says this. We're confident, I say, we'd prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal, our aim, to please him whether we are at home in the body or away from it for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body whether good or bad our goal is primarily to please the Lord he didn't please himself he gave himself up for our salvation 
of bearing our sins in his body on the tree. He did not please himself. He gave himself up for us. The least we can do in response is to seek positively to please him. Now just think of what motivates you. Perhaps Christians are often more motivated to live properly the way God wants us to live. Motivated by seeking carefully to avoid wrong. Wrong thoughts, wrong words, wrong actions. Seeking to avoid things that will displease God. Well, that's fine. That's right. But going over to the positive side makes it even more more of a motivation, I would have thought. Actually, in the morning to get up and say, Lord, show me today how to live so I can please you. See, we, we think God doesn't... Does, I mean, he's God. He's not a human being. He's not a human being, not like us. Does he need to be pleased? Maybe not, but he deserves to be pleased. He desires to be pleased. We are his children. And we like our children to, to want to please us. Yes, I do anyway. Yes, that's normal. And God wants us to so live that we positively, actively please him. In the book of Proverbs, there are some little nuggets of gold, and here's one of them. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he, the Lord, makes even his enemies to live at peace with him. In other words, it's as if God is making a special effort even to deal with our enemies so they live at peace with us if we are making a special effort actively to please him. In Romans 8, what we would do without Romans 8? In Romans 8, Paul states very bluntly a rather painful truth that non-Christians are not capable of pleasing God. He, he says in, in, in Romans 8, verse 18, those who are in the flesh, he says, cannot please God. Here we are. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. But, right into Christians, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Holy Spirit. Because we are controlled and guided and enabled by the Holy Spirit, we are capable of pleasing God. But the non-Christian, the person who is controlled by the sinful nature, can't begin to please God. It's a sad, sad fact that people who may be kind and decent and good and honest and all the rest of it, they cannot please God because they haven't got the capacity, they don't know him, they're not in a relationship with him, they haven't got the Holy Spirit's help whereby they could in fact please him. I wonder if you're here this morning and you don't even know the Lord Jesus yet. Well, the sad fact is you can't please God. You may please your family and your friends and be kind and generous, but you can't please God. You need to come to Jesus and get to know God first because before you can begin to please him. But then you'll have all this wonderful thing we've been talking about, this guarantee of eternal life in the life beyond this present one. We know in Genesis that certain men were in the habit of walking with God and one of these was Enoch there was Enoch there was Noah there was Abraham 
And in Hebrews 11, the writer says, By faith Enoch was taken from this life, so that he did not experience death. He couldn't be found, because God had taken him away. For he, before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. He was given the particular privilege, a totally exceptional privilege, of going from this life into the next without physical death at all. And the reason given for his being treated so generously by God is because he pleased God. But, to end on a rather somber note perhaps, our goal is not only to please the Lord, it is to prepare for the judgment. For we must all, says Paul, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Back in Romans 14, we have another reference to this judgment. For this very reason Christ died and returned to life, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Oh, why do you look down on your brother? For we must all stand before God's judgment seat. Yes, yes, but there's one little passage of scripture which sheds very interesting light on this whole area. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says, For by the grace given me, I, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on the foundation. But each one should be careful how he builds. Each of us is building our life every day. We build a bit more of our life every day we live. For no, for no one, says Paul, can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. There is obviously no other foundation for the Christian life than the Lord Jesus himself. Only once he is in my life can I begin to build a Christian life. Yes, but I must be careful how I build. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it's burned up, he'll suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. What is he telling us here? I think it's very important. You see, Corinth was a city with great variety of housing in it. There were expensive, solid, substantial stone buildings, which if fire swept through the town, at least the shell of these buildings would remain intact. The fire would not burn them up because they were built of stone. But there was also in Corinth shantytown. There was also stones built, uh, houses built of any kind of old rubbish that people could lay their hands on. Paul says, wood, hair, stubble, straw, straw. And if fire swept through Corinth, then the shanty town would be completely wiped out. Oh, so Paul is saying that the fire of God's judgment will test the quality of our Christian lives when we come to the judgment seat of Christ. It's a solemn thought, is it not? But the good news is this. You see, Paul ends up that little passage by saying, if what he or she has built survives the fire of God's judgment, he or she will receive his reward. But if the stuff built into the Christian's life 
is burned up because that's what it's good for he will suffer loss and then Paul uses these words he himself will be saved oh you see we've all known people and some of us we all probably right now this morning know people who sometime in the past seemed to become absolute definite Christians they came to Jesus they put their trust in him they fell in love with him they gave their lives to him they worshipped him they served him and then something happened and they began to slide downhill spiritually and out there this morning in all over Scotland there are people exactly like that I know some of them what's going to happen to them in the day of judgment well some people would say the fact that they've gone away from the Lord indicates they weren't really born again at all I'm not so sure of that because you see this says that the person when the judgment comes who has built all of the rubbish in his life spiritually speaking, eternally speaking he'll suffer loss in other words he won't get any rewards at that judgment day but he himself she herself will be saved but only as one escaping through the flames or to use an English idiom by the skin of their teeth that's good news I think isn't it because we, we sometimes are very concerned about friends and family members who used to be active in the church they loved the Lord they met with the Lord's people where are they now? they don't go anywhere near church they don't read the Bible they don't pray as far as we know they don't appear to be Christians at all and yet and yet and yet this seems to suggest that God in his mercy will accept them into heaven even though they messed up the life that could have been so different let's pray Father we thank you for speaking both encouraging words and warning words to us this morning help us to heed the warning and be careful what we build on the foundation you've given us in our Lord Jesus Christ and Father, we thank you for that cast-iron guarantee we have. The presence of your Spirit in our hearts and lives. The first installment of a glorious future. Guaranteeing that the rest is absolutely certain to follow. And Father, again this morning we ask that you will comfort the hearts of those amongst us who are mourning, we're feeling the sadness of being parted from loved ones who have meant so much to them, with whom they have travelled together for so long. We thank you that you, Father, know how to comfort those who are sad. And we thank you that because we are believers, your joy in us actually outweighs even our sadness. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name.